It was hard to nail down one specific reason why no one could get along. But looking back, it seems like they were divided along lines that sound eerily familiar to us today. Conservative and liberal views on religion had fractured the people, but so had socioeconomic differences. The wealthier, more liberal coastal elites of Salem Town, with its busy port and growing businesses, sat in direct opposition to the inland conservatives who wanted independence and a much more strict church life. That's an oversimplification of the climate, I know, but it's still a fair summary of the key differences, according to most historians. And yet, well, if we were standing in Salem Village in 1692, we would have been able to see the true breadth of the differences with our own eyes. In fact, those differences literally rode into the village on March 1st. You see, there was a law on the books in the Massachusetts Bay Colony that was known as the Sumptuary Laws. Think of the word sumptuous, which means splendid or expensive looking, and you'll get the idea. These were laws that dictated what you could wear, depending on your social status. They acted as a sort of outward sign of a person's place in a larger society. Most people were farmers, working the land as either indentured servants or low-income settlers. They were allowed to wear some of the basic colors, such as muted reds and greens and blues. They wiped their noses on their sleeves rather than on the handkerchiefs that the wealthy used, and their clothing was much more functional than formal. So when John Hawthorne rode into Salem Village that day, even from a distance, it was clear that he was someone important. The black clothing, the silver lace and gold buttons on his coat, the fancy jewelry and beautiful boots, all of it spoke of a person of privilege and power. Two words that accurately described John Hawthorne. With him was another well-dressed man, Jonathan Corwin, They were making their way through the village toward a very special destination, the home of Nathaniel Ingersoll. It was a building that served double duty as the local tavern, what they called an ordinary back then. And Ingersoll's ordinary was about to play host to the opening pitch of a very long, very deadly game, because Hawthorne and Corwin weren't just two rich visitors out on a jaunt through the countryside. They were the law keepers of Salem. The magistrates had arrived. The trials were about to begin. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. Let's begin with systems. We talk a lot today about systems that are breaking down, or how we've stepped outside of the norm and are experiencing a very unusual kind of life. It's a common way of seeing the world. When things feel like they've veered off the typical well-worn path, we notice it. And as we continue to explore Salem, we're going to talk more and more about that sort of thing. But to understand what those deviations meant for the people of Salem over 300 years ago, we have to understand what was expected and normal. 
you can't talk about how the system was breaking down without talking about the system. It's a lot less sexy than descriptions of witchcraft or even general criminal activity, but you can't build a fancy house without a foundation. So, here we go. The Massachusetts Bay Colony had been set up in the New World by a royal charter by England's King James I. A charter was a powerful piece of paper because it established significant institutions like universities, organizations, and, of course, communities. They typically served double duty, too, setting up the colony in an official capacity while also providing the laws and rules for governing it. The Royal Charter for the Massachusetts Bay Colony was issued in 1628. That's almost 65 years before the events in Salem. That means three generations of people learned to understand, follow, and enforce the laws of this new land. And the Charter informed all of that. Even those sumptuary laws I mentioned earlier, the ones that dictated what clothing people were allowed to wear, came from that Charter. Six years after the Charter was established, a man named William Hawthorne arrived in the New World, first settling in the area known as Dorchester, which is now part of Boston's South Side. A year later, he was elected town deputy, but sometime after that, he moved his family north, to Salem. By 1644, he had ascended to the colonial equivalent of the Massachusetts Speaker of the House, was the military leader of Salem, and served as magistrate over the people there. He was the man responsible for giving land to newcomers in Salem, for settling disputes, and levying taxes. One other thing about William Hawthorne, though. Despite the fact that his second wife's mother was a Quaker, he spent a good number of years persecuting them all over the colony. Here's Salem State University professor of history, Emerson Baker. You see that long history of Salem, of that quite literally tortured relationship with Quakers. If you're not one of us, if you're not a Puritan, then you're against us. And more to the point, that means you are stopping, really, the the creation of this godly community, of the city upon the hill. Hawthorne and his first wife had eight children, four boys and four girls. His youngest daughter, by the way, would go on to marry Israel Porter, the man who would later preside over the execution of Thomas Putnam's estate and award most of that fortune to the one Putnam who wanted Salem Village to remain part of Salem Town. His fifth child, born in 1641, was John, the man now making his way toward Nathaniel Ingersoll's ordinary. He had inherited his father's love of the legal foundations of the colony. And after making a fortune in a merchant business co-owned by his father, he began working his way up the same ladders his father had decades before. By 1692, John was 50. He was one of Salem's magistrates and a justice of the peace, along with sitting on a number of important committees. Committees like the one tasked with finding a minister for the Salem Village congregation. Thanks to his father's legacy, John was respected and admired. I think that's equally true of the other judges as well. Most of them, again, are very experienced and long-standing. Most of them are members of the second generation. Again, that's Emerson Baker. You also have Bartholomew Gedney. He's a second-generation merchant. He's a physician. He's the colonel in charge and command of the Essex County Militia. You have Jonathan Corwin, who, again, the Haythorns and Corwins, for, for two generations, the fathers served in the legislature together. They'd been family traditions of militia officers. They had helped make Salem what it was as this bustling, shiny seaport. But here's where things go off the rails. That royal charter that was issued in 1628 
lasted for over six decades. But during that time, a lot had happened back home in England. The Civil War had torn the country apart. King Charles I was executed in 1649, and the monarchy was abolished. Then, in 1660, it was all restored, and Charles II took the throne. It was a time of constant dramatic upheaval, and in the midst of all of it was the fate of England's New World colonies. Many of them weren't in favor of giving the king ultimate authority over their own communities, and Massachusetts was the most vocal about that. So in 1684, England annulled their charter. So when I say that context matters, that we have to understand how things are supposed to work in order to better understand just how broken they were, this is the stuff I'm talking about. Accusations of witchcraft would have been handled differently if the charter had still been in place. But it wasn't. Salem was an untethered boat in a stormy sea, which meant that these new rumors of witchcraft were the worst possible test of their tenuous position. Uncertain of what to do, the community turned to the only people they could trust, and the well-respected John Hawthorne was one of them. Salem might have been in political chaos, but there was still hope. The magistrates were taking charge. The process was already off the rails, so to speak. In the days before the charter had been taken away from the colony, the process was fairly strict and weighty. If you suspected someone of witchcraft, you were accusing them of a capital crime, a crime punishable by death. Because of that, the law made sure everyone had serious skin in the game. Here's Emerson Baker again. Normally, you would have to post bond if you were charging someone with a felony like that, basically what today we'd call a nuisance suit, or to essentially maybe charge persons for political purposes or a way to get back at them. If the case wasn't proven, you'd forfeit your bond. That would have been a substantial inducement to not accuse someone flippantly of a high crime, right? But when Thomas Putnam Jr. and his three friends walked to Salem Town the day after the snowstorm and stood before Hawthorne and Corwin, they did no such thing. Sure, they named names and made accusations, but none of them paid the bond. Despite that, the magistrates still issued the warrants for three individuals. It was unheard of. Their next steps were simple enough. The three women would be arrested and then questioned. The judges would conduct the examinations one by one to determine if the charges were true. And they would do all of this publicly. The morning that Hawthorne and Corwin were traveling to Ingersoll's Ordinary in Salem Village, they had two constables doing their dirty work. Think of them as police officers with very limited power who had been assigned a very specific task. Gather the three women at the center of the accusations and bring them to Ingersoll's for examination. One of the constables, a man named George Locker, only really had one person to bring in that morning. But Sarah Good was a handful and probably needed all of his energy and attention. I'll get into more about why that is in a bit, but what's important to know right now is that Locker found her and took her into custody. When he did, though, Sarah's husband, William Good, followed along. The other constable, Joseph Herrick, had more on his list. He needed to locate two suspects, not one, Sarah Osborne and Tituba, the slave who lived at the Paris home. He managed to collect both of them that morning, but as he did so, he also conducted brief inspections of their homes. 
He even recorded the deed on the back of the warrant. Made diligent search for images and such, he wrote, but can find none. He also had two other jobs that morning. First, he'd been asked to gather the four girls who had started all of the accusations. Betsy Paris, her cousin Abigail Williams, and neighbor girls Annie Putnam and Elizabeth Hubbard. Then, as if that weren't enough, the magistrates had also asked him to bring, in their own words, any other person that can give evidence. Naturally, a crowd was forming. By the time Locker and Herrick arrived at Ingersoll's ordinary with their three suspects, they had a massive entourage in tow. Some had come as part of the official proceedings that were about to take place, but all of them were there to watch. It was a spectacle, unlike anything they had ever seen. The trouble was, Ingersoll's was nothing more than a house-like building, not a stadium. There was no way all of these people were going to fit inside that humble structure. Three suspects, two husbands, four accusers, two constables, and two magistrates. That was 13 people without any other witnesses. So Hawthorne and Corwin put their heads together, and they made a decision. They needed to go elsewhere. Just down the road was the new Salem Village Meeting House. And while it wasn't enormous, it was built to hold larger crowds, so it would have to do. Inside, it was a wide open space, roughly 34 feet by 28 feet. It's no longer standing today. Few buildings from that era are, to be honest. But it was described as a barn-like structure that was modeled after traditional buildings of similar purpose. I made the mistake early on of thinking of the meeting house purely as a church. And yes, that's where Samuel Paris preached every Sunday in front of his congregation. But the building served civic duties as well. It was exactly what they called it, a meeting house. It was literally a place for meetings. So moving the examinations of the three suspects under that roof made a lot of sense. Speaking of which, not all of the suspects were brought over at once. In fact, when Hawthorne and Corwin made the brief trek back out into the snow and trudged down the road to the larger space... Only Sarah Good followed behind them, watched over by Constable George Locker. When the meeting began moments later, Sarah Good found herself standing alone before the two magistrates as a packed house watched on. Few people in the room cared for Sarah Good, including the judges. If she was expecting to throw herself on the mercy of the court, she was about to be very disappointed. There would be no mercy to be found. Sarah Good was the very definition of an outsider. Life didn't start out that way for her, though. Her father had been a prosperous pub owner when she was born in 1653. Trouble began 19 years later when he passed away and none of that wealth was bequeathed to her. She was left completely on her own. Her first husband had been a farmer, but life was hard for them, and they took on more debts than either of them could manage. When he died a few years later... Sarah was left to carry the entire burden herself. Her current husband, William Good, thought he could help, but both of them had become buried under the weight of it all. By 1692, the couple had a four-year-old daughter named Dorothy and a three-month-old infant, but not much else. Sarah and William had been forced to hand a portion of their tiny property to debtors, and then had to sell the rest so that they could support themselves, which meant that by March of 1692, they were homeless sleeping in neighbors' barns and begging for food. 
Think about it from Sarah's point of view. She had been born into a comfortable life, but then all of that had been taken away from her, sending her into a downward spiral of defeat and hopelessness. It's no wonder others in the community viewed her as bitter and sullen. When she walked around town grumbling under her breath and generally being mean to everyone else, she was pissed off, and honestly, I can't blame her. After all of that, here she was, standing before the magistrates in a crowded meeting house on a cold March morning, and you can't help but wonder if she would have been there at all if she had been a little bit more likable, a little more well-off, and a little more religious. Sarah Good, as far as I can tell, was thought of as guilty before she stepped through the door, simply because she didn't fit in. Sarah Good, John Hawthorne began, what evil spirit have you familiarity with? None, she replied. The written records can't convey the tone of her voice, but knowing everything else we do about her, I'm positive her answer was dripping with annoyance. Have you made no contract with the devil? He continued. No. Then, pointing toward the four girls who had begun the entire ordeal, Hawthorne continued, Why do you hurt these children? I do not hurt them, she replied. In response, Hawthorne asked the girls to look at Sarah Good and say whether or not she was the person who had been tormenting them. They replied that Good was one of the people responsible, yes. A moment later, all four of them began to convulse and cry out in pain. For the first time, all of the torment and despair that had been kept behind the closed doors of the Paris home was on full display, laid bare to the eyes of everyone in the galleries. If their accusations of witchcraft had begun as a private matter, left to the realms of whispers and rumor, this was the moment it transformed. The cat, as black and evil as it was, was finally out of the bag. After the noise died down, Sarah Good's examination continued. Hawthorne used the outburst as evidence of witchcraft and asked Sarah Good to tell the truth. Why do you torment these poor children? When she shook her head, Hawthorne replied, Who was it, then, that tormented the children? When she answered, the words stunned the crowd. It was Sarah Osborne. Sarah Good had named names. She had taken the net of accusation and tossed it wider, snagging another woman in it. But before the court moved on to speak with Osborne, who was waiting for them back at Ingersoll's Ordinary, they brought a witness up to the front of the room to speak to Sarah Good's character. It was her own husband, William Good. Here is Jane Kamensky, a professor of history at Harvard University. In a place like Massachusetts, where it's an inquisitorial system, not an advocacy system, a goal of Puritan religion and a goal of jurisprudence is to get to the truth, not to defend one side against the other. Those are instances where the charges at hand and the testimony of neighbors had made people question the behavior of those they lived with intimately, and it would have been expected in the community that they would come forward with their doubts. There's a unity of husband and wife as a political person, as an economic person. He had recently told someone else in town that Sarah, and I quote, either was a witch or would be one very quickly. And they asked him to explain what that meant. At first, he tried to back out of it, claiming that she had treated him poorly and he was just lashing out at her for it. But the magistrates continued to press him on it. 
Eventually, with tears in his eyes, he turned to them and explained that his wife was, and I quote, an enemy of all good. That was all the magistrates needed to hear. With a gesture from Hawthorne, Constable George Locker moved in from the side of the room and took Sarah Good's arm. He guided her toward the door and then out into the cold. As he did, the next suspect was led in. Sarah Good had deflected the blame, and now it was Sarah Osborne's turn to defend herself. But her battle wouldn't be any easier. Sarah Osborne had no idea what had transpired inside the meeting house during her long wait back at Ingersoll's. But when one of the constables came to lead her out of the tavern and down the snow-covered road to the official gathering, his face probably told her everything she needed to know. At the end of that short, cold walk was a dangerous display of Puritan law. Now, before we dive into her examination it would be helpful to take a small tour of exactly how that law functioned there in the colony. The Massachusetts law that had been on the books since 1648 was sort of a hybrid of the typical laws of the time, mixed with Puritan biblical rules. In fact, John Hawthorne's father, William, most likely helped put all of that law on paper. Today we live in a world where there's a strong distinction between civic law and religious customs. In 1692, though, there was no such thing. All of the laws drew heavily on biblical ideas and leveled punishment at anyone who broke them. Whipping and branding were common, but the authorities also engaged in ear-cropping and nose-slitting, which were as painful and horrific as they sound. There's a bit of nuance there, according to historian Marilyn Roach. Not every sin is a crime, but all crimes involve some kind of sin. Drunkenness would be sinful. But if a guy is drunk but he doesn't waste the family's substance, beat the wife and the children, then it's not a crime, but it's sinful. The important thing to remember here is that the Puritans of Massachusetts in 1692 didn't see a distinction between the church and the state. You could be charged with showing contempt of the ministry or even just bad habits— Your only hope was to be a law-abiding, church-going, Puritan devotee. Outside of that narrow umbrella, you were at risk. Sarah Osborne sat outside that narrow umbrella, and she knew it. That's why she was worried about her examination, not because she was actually a witch. You see, Sarah Osborne had been stuck in bed for over a year due to illness, which had prevented her from doing a lot of things, including attending church and the community had noticed. It didn't help that her past was less than ideal in their eyes. After marrying into a distant branch of the Putnam family and raising two sons, her husband died and placed their land in the hands of John and Thomas Putnam, and they weren't the sharing type. It also didn't help that shortly after her husband died, she began a relationship with a young indentured servant named Alexander Osborne. The scandal was practically overwhelming and the village buzzed with rumors. Folks wondered if she and her lover conspired to kill her husband. They mocked the age difference between the two of them. They found it indecent that Sarah freed him from his indenture herself to pave the way for their marriage. It was all far too unconscionable for their small community. 
When Sarah Good was led into the meeting house that day, it was like being shoved into the lion's den. She had been absent from church for long enough to give the impression she had rejected God. She was the longtime enemy of the Putnam family thanks to her property dispute with them, so when she laid eyes on Annie Putnam, one of the four girls making the accusations, she knew the odds were stacked against her. All four of the girls began to convulse and shriek at the sight of her. The packed room fell silent as everyone held their breath in utter horror. Right there, before their eyes, a witch was tormenting her victims. It was abhorrent and evil to the core. The first questions were the same ones Sarah Good had to answer. What evil spirit have you familiarity with? Why do you hurt these children? Have you made no contract with the devil? That was to be expected. But then the magistrates brought up Sarah Good and asked how often the two women saw each other. I have not seen her these two years, Osborne replied. Frustrated, Hawthorne turned his questions toward her work as a witch. Osborne shook her head and protested. I'm more likely to be bewitched than to be one myself, was her response. But rather than settle the matter, that statement gave Hawthorne a bit of new flesh to claw at. Why do you say that? he asked. In response, Osborne told Hawthorne about a dream she had years ago. She had opened her eyes to find the dark figure of a Native American standing at the foot of her bed. After some struggle, this home invader had grabbed her by the hair and dragged her to the door of her house. At the same time, she claimed she heard a voice that told her she, and I quote, should go no more to meeting. Noting her clear absence from church in the time since that dream, Hawthorne dug in. Why did you yield thus far to the devil then? But that wasn't the reason she stayed home in bed each day. She was sick, and she told him so. Even her own husband spoke up and confirmed the dates. One year and two months, he said, which didn't really seem to help. Sarah Osborne had painted herself into a corner. While trying to prove that she wasn't a witch, she had put forth a story that was meant to cast her in the light of a victim. She was nothing more than an innocent woman who had been cursed. But the magistrates hadn't heard the message she was trying to get across. They heard an admission of guilt. She had received orders from the devil himself, they said, and then she had followed them. Right there, on the first day of examinations, a suspect had revealed her true colors. And yet the day was far from over. One more woman had yet to take the stand. When she did, though, she would pull on the thread that would unravel the entire community. Everything they believed was about to be confronted. And they would never be the same. If Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne were outsiders, Tituba was an alien in a foreign land. By 1692, it was the second time in her life that she had felt that way. She was, of course, a slave, but she was also referred to as an Indian in all of the surviving documents from the Salem trials. Now, for most of the settlers living in New England, an Indian was anyone from one of the many Native American tribes in the area, the Wampanoag. Narragansett and Wabanaki being some of the most common. But Tituba was not from the Northeast, or even from North America. She had been, like so many others during the four centuries of transatlantic slave trade, kidnapped from her home and taken far away. 
We can infer a few details of her past from her name and where she began her life of slavery. Barbados, where the Paris family had lived in the late 17th century, placed a high value on slaves from South America, particularly in the area of modern-day Venezuela. The women from the Arawak tribes were gifted at skills their slavers needed, like weaving cloth, which was highly valued in Puritan society. One of the clan names within the Arawak people is Tetibatana, which some scholars think was reduced down to Tituba. It's highly likely that she was kidnapped into slavery around the age of 10, and taken straight to Barbados to serve there among the white landowners who needed domestic servants. It's all a guess, but based on a lot of strong clues. What we're a lot more sure about is that when Samuel Paris sold off his plantation in Barbados and then headed north to Salem, he brought Tituba, along with her husband John, with him. So when she finally arrived in Massachusetts in 1680, it was the second time she had been removed from a place she was familiar with and thrown into a strange new land. And while her life in Barbados might have been different from South America, it was only when she moved to Puritan Massachusetts that the culture shock really hit her. It was cold and strict, and very unfriendly. Don't assume she was brought in as an equal, though, despite the efforts to Christianize anyone who wasn't white. The color of her skin placed her firmly outside the community in every practical sense, from rights and freedoms to the types of punishment they had to endure. If a white settler broke a minor law, they would typically be fined. A slave, though, would face physical punishment. Court documents show us how slaves were referred to as it or that, instead of he, she, or even they. It dehumanized them, and as history has shown us, when you dehumanize a person or a people group, it's a lot easier to rob them of even the most basic human rights. Slavery is New England's dirty little secret, first off. And we know that as early as the 1630s that we have the first sort of documented evidence of slaves coming into Massachusetts. So not longer after the colony starts, slaves come in as well. That's Emerson Baker once again. They're not a large presence in the colony. We don't have a plantation economy, but we do need people to work the docks and places like the lumber mills and working the crops. They do become sort of a status symbol for the wealthier merchants, I think. One more thing about Tituba and her background. She didn't come to Massachusetts as an empty vessel. Like each and every one of our own ancestors, when she was transplanted from one part of the world to another, she brought her beliefs and traditions and folklore with her. Yes, the Paris family probably did their best to teach their slaves the Christian faith, but nothing was going to erase those older stories and lessons. Stories of devils in the woods that prowled in search of those who stepped off the path. Tales of evil spirits that could take the form of animals or even take control of humans. They were stories of darkness and fear and risk. Tituba's world was alive with danger. So when she stood before the magistrates that cold March day and told John Hawthorne that the devil had approached her and asked her to serve him, It wasn't a notion she would have found unusual. But in a room full of frightened Puritans, living on the edge of the known world, thousands of miles from their homeland, it was a bombshell. But then she dove deeper into the hysteria. She told Hawthorne that she had personally witnessed at least four women torment the girls. Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne were too, but she couldn't remember the names of the others. But they would command her to hurt them. 
And then there was the tall man. The crowd was most likely forced into a frightened silence. According to Tituba, there weren't just two other witches, the first two women examined that day. No, there were five others beside her, four women and one man. Tituba went on to apologize for hurting the girls and claimed that it would never happen again. She was only doing what she had been instructed to do by the others. She was a slave, after all, not a person, just a thing to order around. How could she be held responsible for her actions? She was painting a frightening picture for the magistrates and the people in the galleries listening to her. Things were much worse than they had feared. When she was pressured to identify the man who worked alongside the witches, Tituba shook her head. She didn't know his name, but he took the form of a hog and sometimes a great black dog that spoke to her. Stacy Schiff is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian. We know so little about Tituba that it's very hard to say where that comes from. It has been hinted at it's possible that she was fed some lines. It indeed is she who mentions the she's got yellow birds, she's got red cats, she's got a black hog. It's very colorful stuff. And yes, the furry creature with the wings and the long nose who sits by the fireplace. This particular animal, according to Tituba, was dragging her out of the Paris house where she had been instructed to torment the girls under her care and out into the wider village. That's why Elizabeth Hubbard and Annie Putnam were pinched and stabbed as well, because the man who took the shape of a black dog forced her to do it. There were more animals, too. Sarah Good had a small yellow bird that suckled at the skin between her fingers. A dark man had offered her a bird of her own, but she refused. And one of the witches sent a different animal to afflict Elizabeth Hubbard. A wolf. The entire crowd probably inhaled at once. They had all heard the story of the wolf following poor Elizabeth home just days before, and this confession only seemed to make it more real and more frightening. And it forced everyone to wrestle with a larger question, one that left all of them unsettled and anxious. If the wolf was real, what else was out there for them to fear? If the magistrates were looking for scary stories, Tituba was ready to deliver. As I mentioned earlier, she was well-equipped for this sort of task. Born into a culture that believed in the dangers of the supernatural world around her, this new world of Christianity, with its demons and devils, monsters and magic, was at once both new and familiar. Stacy Schiff, once again. Remember that she's the only woman of those three who's a slave. And we're probably lived in fear of reporting back to Samuel Paris in whose household she lives. She's clearly been with the family for years. She clearly loves the children. She lives in close quarters. She probably slept in the same beds as they. She may have been told a tale. She may also have been a tale teller. After revealing Sarah Good as the source of the wolf that had pursued Elizabeth Hubbard, Tituba moved on to describe the creature that seemed to serve Sarah Osborne. It had a head like a woman, she said with two legs and wings. At that very moment, Abigail Williams, the niece of Samuel Paris and the first of the girls to show signs of this demonic torment, shouted out that she had seen that very same creature with her own eyes. In fact, when she saw it, she had watched in horror as it transformed back into the shape of Sarah Osborne. 
But Tituba wasn't finished just yet. What else have you seen? Hawthorne asked her, like a child asking his grandmother about all the places she'd visited in her lifetime. Another hairy thing, she replied. It goes upright like a man and has only two legs. This thing, she told them, had appeared right inside the minister's house the previous night, standing in front of the fire as if to warm itself. It was dressed in black clothing and stood very tall, and he sometimes brought a woman with him, one who wore a black hood with a topknot on it. At this final description, the four girls began to writhe and cry out in their nearby seats. They began to act as if something invisible were attacking them, striking them and causing them pain. They appeared to be in agony. Do you see who it is that torments these girls? Hawthorne demanded. Yes, Tituba said. It is Sarah Good. She hurts them in her own shape. And then it stopped. It was almost as if naming the attacker was enough to frighten her off. The girls all fell into a hushed calm, and the people gathered around them did the same. But it wouldn't last. After a brief pause, the girls began crying out in pain and convulsing all over again. Who hurts them now? Hawthorne demanded. In response, Tituba moved her head back and forth, almost as if she were looking around the room. But her eyes were distant, almost blank. She rolled her head backward and then forward again, and side to side, until finally she gave him an answer. I am blind now, she said. I cannot see. Tituba had led the village to the edge of a precipice, and then abandoned them there. She was certain that they were all in danger, but she had nothing else to tell them. Whether her insider knowledge had just dried up, or there were no more fresh fictions to weave into her testimony, she was done, however much the rest of the crowd wanted her to keep going. But that was a dangerous thing. If Tituba could no longer see the truth, then they would have to go hunt it for themselves. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Next time on Unobscured. He told me to sign my name in it, she said. And did you do that? They asked. Yes, one time I made a mark in the book with a red ink. Red like blood. Did he take that red ink from your own body? No, but he said he would get it out of me the next time he visited. And then the magistrates dug deeper. They believed that Tituba had seen the devil's book, his tool for recruiting humans into his evil mission among them. So he asked about that. Did you see any other marks in this book? They asked. Yes, she said. A great many. Some in red, some in yellow. He held it wide open and showed me a great many marks in it. What names were in the book, they asked. Did he tell you? Good and Osborne, she answered. But there were more I couldn't read. Hawthorne and Corwin must have felt a chill run down their spines. More names meant more witches. They had already found three, which felt overwhelming as it was. But now they had learned that there were more among them. They prayed it wasn't an insurmountable number.
Unobscured was created and written by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick and Alex Williams in partnership with How Stuff Works, with research by Carl Nellis and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, further reading material, a resource archive, and links to our other shows at historyunobscured.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>